Hi, this is Bruce Ellis Benson, the host of Unbecoming. Today we'll be discussing forgiveness, but before we dive into that, I'd like to spend just a moment discussing why I make this podcast. As you probably know, until recently I was a full-time professor. If you're a regular listener, you know that I've worked at such institutions as Wheaton College, the Catholic University of Leuven, the University of St. Andrews, and Union Theological Seminary in New York City. When I started doing this podcast last year, I was expecting it to be nothing more than a hobby, a kind of sideline. But the response has been so overwhelmingly positive, I decided to leave the academy and focus on podcasting full-time. Those of you who've heard my story probably also realize that moving to podcasting means that I can finally say what I really think. And you've responded just wonderfully. Not only is it encouraging to see that our downloads grow day by day, but it's also been great to hear from so many of you, some of whom are even former students from a long time ago. Often I hear about the unique challenges listeners have faced in the evangelical world. Certainly I'm no stranger to many of these challenges. The sad fact is that even in 2023, figures like Bill Gothard have power and sway and new threats like those folks at the Daily Wire have sprung up, spreading their own brand of hate infused with Christianity. I feel strongly that one of the reasons that this podcast is successful is that not only do we provide criticism of figures like Matt Walsh or Bill Gothard, we also try to show a new path forward, a path that truly takes at face value the claim that God is love. It is so important to realize that what figures like Gothard and Walsh do is create a world for their listeners. It's a dark world where threats are everywhere, and the only way to counter them is by way of hatred, violence, and further circling of the wagons. The title of our podcast, Unbecoming, comes from Nietzsche's life motto, Become Who You Are. As beings who are constantly undergoing change, we are always in the midst of development. And as beings who are fundamentally social and relational, those who are around us, both physically and digitally, have a profound effect on how we change and who we become. The true danger of people like Bill Gothard and Matt Walsh is they take the most bigoted aspects of conservative Christianity and supercharge them. Rather than making people less dogmatic and more open to inquiry, they close the world of their followers and make them far more dogmatic and sheltered. If you buy into the rhetoric that takes place on their programs, you stop developing. You become static, frozen in a world where darkness is constantly closing in and threats lurk just around the next corner. I'd like to invite you to take a different path. Just like M Walsh and Bill Gothard, we're creating a world, but one where the spirit of charity is a greater power than the spirit of evil. The only thing that can truly fight radical hate is radical love. I was convinced of this long ago, but my experiences, both in academia and more generally, have made it clear to me that this is a fundamental choice. The choice is between love and hate. Jesus invites us to love our enemies, which is truly subversive of the order of hatred. While what is happening right now is incredibly dangerous, it seems like every day a new story emerges about conservative Christianity tending more towards theocracy and further from the true teachings of Jesus. The best and most Christian response is, of course, being willing to forgive and to offer a path for redemption. 
But until we get to such a point, we need to put up a fight, but not with hatred. We need to argue against hate and for love. We need to call bad theology and bigoted philosophy out for what it is, yet also show how good theology and more reasonable philosophy can show us a path forward. In short, we need to continue what we've been doing already on this podcast. Perhaps at this point you're wondering how you can get involved. I'm really looking to build a community with this podcast, so I really do want to hear from you. Whether it's just a short note to let me know that you're listening, or a lengthy critique of a recent or past episode, or anything in between. I've received some great letters from you, and they have gladdened my heart. At the same time, the kind of world-building that I'm trying to do doesn't always come cheap. You may have noticed that our podcast is meticulously recorded and edited. Not only is recording equipment and editing software pricey, but this is also my full-time job. I no longer have the stable income of a university professor. So if you can, would you consider helping us to build this community? If you find the podcast helpful to your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, that would be great. Please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or at paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Let me add one last thing. I've just been invited to give a talk at this year's Theology Beer Camp. It's going to be held in Springfield, Missouri. And the dates are October 19 to 21. Uh, that's 2023, in case you're wondering. This is kind of a casual conference in which people who do podcasts related to theology get together, which is why it's titled The God Pods Strike Back. But really, it's open to everyone. If you're interested and want to attend, you can use the promo code BRUCEGODPOD. Yeah, that's all one word, all caps. This is the first time I've ever been able to use my name and God in one phrase. Though I have to confess that when the film Bruce Almighty came out, I cut out a full-page ad and stuck it on the bulletin board at home. Not because I think I'm almighty. In fact, it's because I'm convinced that I'm really not almighty. That's what I found so funny about it. Anyway, it's something for you to consider attending. The description of those people who are invited is that of theology nerd. And really, only you can decide if that's you. We talked about forgiveness last week by considering various things that might seem to be forgiveness, but turn out to be pieces or fragments of what constitutes forgiveness as a whole. In this week's episodes, I want to turn your attention to what I call forgiveness oppression. I have in mind demands or requests for forgiveness from the very people who've hurt you. Perhaps you've never had this experience, but I've been asked by people who've hurt me to just forgive them. But they want forgiveness without admitting that they really did anything wrong. If you want a general sort of example, consider various public apologies that have been issued by those who may be truly remorseful versus those that are more like a public relations ploy. I'm talking about people who appear to be saying words that they think count as proper apologizing and remorse, but when you hear their apologies, you instinctively know they aren't genuine. Here are some examples. I'm sorry for whatever pain I've caused anyone. I never attended it. And I will be better for this experience. That's Andrew Cuomo in 2021. Isn't it nice to know that Cuomo has learned from the pain he's caused? 
though I suspect that most of us wonder if that's really true. Here's another. We are sorry for the role played by the Lloyd's Market in the 18th and 19th century slave trade, an appalling and shameful period of English history, as well as our own. That's from Lloyd's of London in 2020. I am greatly embarrassed. I behaved insensitively at times, and I accept responsibility for that, though I do not believe that all of these allegations are accurate. I have learned a great deal as a result of these events. That's Charlie Rose in 2017, another one of the people who seem to, or at least claim to, have learned (laughs) from their mistakes. And then finally, this one from Justin Trudeau. It is with shame and sorrow and deep regret for the things we have done that I stand here today and say, we were wrong. We apologize. I am sorry. We are sorry. For state-sponsored systemic oppression and rejection, we are sorry. It wouldn't be hard to come up with many more examples, but I think these are sufficient for our purposes here. In the past few decades, a general consensus regarding forgiveness has emerged in much of the Western world. Put simply, it is the idea that you should forgive unconditionally, whether your attacker is planning a further attack, or your body's been violated, or your attacker shows zero sense of remorse, or perhaps all of these together. Although the origins of this conception of forgiveness are clearly Christian in nature, such thinking has become so widespread that its connection with Christianity is often forgotten. Of course, one could argue that remembering this connection is important. For what Jesus teaches is that under certain conditions, forgiveness is actually commanded. Yet the reality is that forgiveness has been largely decoupled from that command, and so has instead become a kind of largely secular concept. Unconditional forgiveness has become a quasi-political or social doctrine a mantra heard in secular mouths just as much as religious ones. For instance, it was basic to the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which insisted that victims of violence must forgive the perpetrators of violence, whether they exhibited remorse or not. And we've also heard the so-called apologies from various sexual harassers. Psychologists and others who study forgiveness frequently claim that forgiving is a way around the wrong done, a way that escapes the fate of remaining a victim, a way of moving from resentment to something like contentment. But this is often exactly what perpetrators want. What better situation for perpetrators than to have their victims take the opiate of forgiveness and give up any hope of of justice? To that end, perpetrators put forth fake apologies with the intention of persuading their victims to give up their moral ground and place themselves on the same moral plane as the wrongdoer. By fake apologies, I mean ones that attempt to admit some blame, but try to keep it to a minimum. That would be Charlie Rose. Or that use vague language like, I'm sorry for whatever pain I've caused. Andrew Cuomo, and actually, for that matter, a whole lot of other people. Or employ other strategies designed to assuage victims' anger. Of the apologies listed at the beginning of the podcast, that of Justin Trudeau apologizing for the ways in which the LGBTQ plus community has been systematically victimized comes closest to a real apology. I think it's actually a pretty good apology, as apologies go. 
Yet while there are clearly good uses for forgiveness, my worry is that perpetrators of abuse often attempt to apologize to their victims in order to keep them silent. They are not truly sorry for what they have done. They just want to get off the hook. In return, given the imperative, you must forgive, victims feel guilty withholding forgiveness, that somehow they are to blame. I have no doubt that forgiveness in many cases is a good thing. Yet what worries me is that powerful people are often able to get away with abuse, followed by only cursory apologies that are clearly designed to keep victims from speaking up and minimize what was done. One thing that the Me Too movement has shown is that powerful cisgender heteronormative men have been using such strategies for decades. As a member of the LGBTQ plus community, I have witnessed many appeals for forgiveness on the part of political and religious leaders. Again, while there is a place for forgiveness, those who have been victimized should be cautious. Cautious regarding forgiveness too freely and too quickly. Alas, many Christian leaders have betrayed their congregations or ministries, but still expect to get forgiven. In what follows, I want to lay out the history and the logic of unconditional forgiveness. The history is, as mentioned, largely Christian in origin, though the rise of such a conception of forgiveness was influenced by 1980s psychology, which in turn influenced thinking in theological circles. Given that origin, it is useful to turn back and consider what Jesus really taught about forgiveness, which is significantly different from anything like unconditional forgiveness. The philosopher Hannah Arendt labels Jesus the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs. There is an important grain of truth in that claim, but I think Arendt mischaracterizes what Jesus teaches on forgiveness. And in this, she's not alone. Instead, she's part of a large group of people who have mischaracterized Jesus' teaching on forgiveness, often to their own benefit. Given the version of Jesus' teaching that Arendt and others endorse, victims are truly in danger. Accordingly, my pushback here is aimed at what I call the preachers of unconditional forgiveness. While my intention is to mock such teachers and preachers in the way that Nietzsche mocks the teachers of the purpose of existence, I also argue that giving forgiveness to those who do not deserve it veers perilously close to what Nietzsche calls slave morality, and so is at best dangerous. However, having invoked Nietzsche, the question immediately arises, isn't Nietzsche against any sort of ressentiment? And does not failing to forgive result in one being locked in the jaws of deep despair and hatred? To be sure, precisely this kind of result is what the preachers of unconditional forgiveness warn us against. For instance, Desmond Tutu writes, Not to forgive leads to bitterness and hatred, which, just like self-hatred and self-contempt, gnaw away at the vitals of one's being. But isn't this a false dichotomy? Are all victims necessarily doomed to a future in which their choices either forgive their attackers no matter what or fall into the depths of bitterness and ressentiment? I don't think so. The question, though, is this. Is there a sort of resentment, not ressentiment, which would seem to be, by definition, bad, that can be characterized in a more positive way? Let's go back to Arendt, who makes the following claim. The reason for the insistence on the duty to forgive is clearly, for they know not what they do. 
and it does not apply to the extremity of crime and world evil. While this claim seems relatively simple, it's actually problematic. Arendt is making a reference to Luke 23:34, in which Jesus, while on the cross, says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That verse does not appear in all the early manuscripts of the Christian Bible, which does make its veracity a bit doubtful. But of course, its presence or its absence also raises the question of why it would even be there in the first place. Might this be some kind of interpolation designed to get the scribes and priests or the Roman soldiers off the hook for killing Jesus? With that line of reasoning in mind, it's significant that in Acts chapter 2, Peter addresses himself to a specifically Jewish audience using the vocative, which is the way you address people, men of Israel. This is Acts 2.12, if you want to look it up. In that speech, he uses the phrase, this Jesus whom you crucified. Given that statement, it is not surprising that the existence of the text and whether it is either included or missing from the printed text can be seen as having anti-Semitic overtones. If the pericope is included, it can be seen as either an excuse given for the Jewish authorities or else a reminder that it was the Jews who did this. The lack of knowledge aspect can be underscored by what Peter goes on to say. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, in terms of killing Jesus. Read in that context, the verse seems to get pretty much everyone off the hook. Yet even if Jesus did say this on the cross, he doesn't actually forgive anyone, but merely says, Father, forgive them. The saying is not, I forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Whether Jesus found it too difficult to actually forgive those who were in the process of killing him, or he was simply unwilling to do so, would be hard to decide. Note, too, that this is a request directed to the Father. It's not part of Jesus' explicit teaching on forgiveness, and it would be questionable to take a request directed to God as a general guideline for human forgiveness. However, if we take Jesus' words literally, the answer to why he might have said this becomes reasonably clear. In ancient Greek, Hebrew, and Roman cultures, forgiveness was only possible if someone had done something mistakenly. Put otherwise, a wrong done deliberately, in other words, with full knowledge and understanding, was completely unforgivable. The unforgivable sin in ancient cultures was the one that was done with full knowledge of what one was doing. Thus, Jesus' comment can be read as being fully in line with this ancient view, since the reason given for forgiveness is ignorance. Accordingly, this is why Arendt adds that such forgiveness does not apply to the extremity of crime and willed evil. But here we come to a crucial point. What counts as willed evil? Or perhaps more precisely put, what kind of evil is truly forgivable? And how does one distinguish between that sort of evil and evil willed to the point where it does not fall under the heading not knowing what one is doing? In one sense, we never know precisely what we're doing. We never have crystal clarity regarding our motives. We never simply act on our own, and we never know exactly how our actions will work out in practice, even if we intend a really good outcome. Given the sheer enormity of this problem, this question, let's set it aside. For the moment, we need to examine why Jesus 
condones forgiveness at all. Arendt points to the parable of the wicked servant who is unconditionally forgiven by a king a debt that would have been completely unpayable. The servant immediately goes and demands a comparatively small amount from a fellow servant. When the king hears of this, he throws the servant in jail. The dialogue goes like this. Then his lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you besought me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Jesus summed things up by saying, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Such a characterization makes God sound like the ultimate accountant. You have failed to forgive, so no forgiveness for you. By taking that parable in isolation and then linking it with the supposed saying on the cross, Arendt arrives at a position as to what Jesus says regarding forgiveness. However, this is not all that Jesus says about forgiveness, and Arendt fails to consider the total evidence. For instance, in the Lord's Prayer, we get a similar connection between human forgiving and divine forgiveness as in the parable of the wicked servant. Yet it has a very different sort of effect. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, reads one of the lines. The question here is, should we take forgiveness in this passage to be purely reciprocal and conditional on God's part? In other words, is Jesus saying that God's forgiveness is utterly dependent upon our own forgiveness, that if we don't forgive others, then God will not forgive us? Most interpreters see this parallel between the divine and human forgiveness as the bedrock of community. It's not a tit-for-tat conception of forgiveness. You don't forgive, I don't forgive. It's not like that at all. Jesus sees his followers as being in community with other followers and himself and with God. As part of a community, followers of Jesus both forgive and are forgiven. Yet all of that still needs to be put in the context of what Jesus considers to be true forgiveness. And his formula forgiveness goes as follows. If a brother sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you're not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. One could hardly imagine a clear condemnation of unconditional forgiveness. The formula here is wrong done, rebuke to the wrongdoer, repentance of the wrongdoer, and forgiveness by the one wronged. One could suggest that Jesus might permit forgiveness without any expectation of repentance, but there isn't any textual evidence to support that view. Instead, the break with such a person is total and final. No repentance, no forgiveness. In Jesus' time, being a tax collector was about as low in society as one could go. How Luke reports this is even more ominous. Be on guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender, and if there is repentance, you must forgive. It would be difficult to read this kind of advice as simply turning the other cheek. One should beware of those who cause offense. 
However, if that person repents, then forgiveness is required. There is a must here of rebuke, a must of repentance, and a must of forgiveness. Yet only repentance necessitates forgiveness. Whereas the passage in Luke seems to leave open the possibility of forgiveness without repentance, the passage in Matthew, in effect, forbids forgiveness. The wrongdoer is exiled from the community, and no further relationship is possible. Note that the term that Jesus uses here, adelphos, in the Matthew passage, indicates someone who is part of the Christian community, which would have been established by the time of Luke's writing. Given that context, one might suggest that what Jesus says only applies to the Christian community. However, if we take that route, then anything Jesus says about forgiveness should simply be ignored in any context other than a specifically Christian community. Arendt is certainly not writing in that context, and the Christian idea of forgiveness is often used in distinctly non-Christian contexts. I see no reason why what Jesus says about forgiveness in the Christian community cannot have a wider application, but choosing bits and pieces of that teaching is problematic because I think those pieces actually are designed to go together. It's only in the context of the Matthew passage that Peter's famous question about forgiveness can be understood because it arises in response to what Jesus says. After hearing that those who repent must be granted forgiveness, Peter quite understandably asks, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? You can imagine Peter is probably thinking, that's like so many. Jesus gives a very simple but striking response. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. The general consensus in the scholarly community is this means basically keep forgiving. In Luke, that interaction is put in these terms. If the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times a day and says, I repent, you must forgive. Giving forgiveness is not based on how often one has been wrong. Instead, it's based upon the wrongdoer's repentance. Now, what is repentance? The term in the text is metano, which literally means to think or perceived afterwards, which can be translated as change of mind. You probably know that metanoia is the standard Christian term for conversion, which can be described as a fundamental change in one's being, a 180-degree turnaround in character. Without this change on the part of the wrongdoer, there is no obligation to forgive. One is completely off the hook. Even that does not put it strongly enough. Given what Jesus says in Matthew, the obligation is to resist the person and throw him out of the community. So how did this very circumscribed responsibility to forgive get turned into something general and without conditions? The origin of such a view is the pop psychology of the 1980s, in which forgiveness came to be seen as a therapeutic strategy. One can find evidence of this in countless texts, but a primary text here is Lewis B. Smead's Forgive and Forget, subtitled Healing the Hurts We Don't Deserve. Whereas the formula forgiveness Jesus uses is about how a functional community works, Smeads is only concerned with the person who has been hurt. It is in this sense that forgiveness is purely therapeutic. One forgives in order to find inner peace. Smeads is very clear about what he's saying. Forgiveness is about you. It concerns no one else. This is what he writes. The only way to heal the pain that will not heal itself is to forgive the person who hurt you. Forgiving stops the reruns of pain. 
Forgiving heals your memory as you change your emotions. When you release the wrongdoer from the wrong, you cut a malignant tumor out of your inner life. You set a prisoner free, but you discover that the real prisoner was yourself. Just to be clear, Smedes does recognize that his definition of forgiveness is not exactly the standard one in Christian theology. He cites Paul Tillich, who says that genuine forgiveness is participation, reunion overcoming the power of estrangement. Then Smedes goes on to say, in Tillich's opinion, forgiving does not really happen unless people are brought together in a renewed relationship, close, intimate, mutually accepting. Forgiveness completed, fulfilled in the coming together of two people, is the only genuine article. The problem here is that Tillich's opinion turns out to reflect what Jesus actually teaches. Forgiveness is concerned with rebuilding relationships. Indeed, a central aspect of forgiving is that such a relationship is able to continue. Though there are times when forgiveness might not lead to rebuilding a relationship, such as in the cases of sexual abuse, in contrast, Smedes is working with a conception of forgiving that has no historical basis, since forgiveness has always been tied to a community. We can see that centrality of community in such diverse texts as the Hebrew Bible, Aristotle's rhetoric, and Quintilian's Institutio Oratio. Smedes' book was published in 1984, which I have to say seems a little appropriate in some ways. In Orwell's novel of that name, everything is turned around. The Ministry of Truth writes and distributes propaganda. The Ministry of Peace is about war. It's this turnaround that I'm wanting you to see. You might wonder why I single out Smedes, given that he's hardly alone in preaching this sort of forgiveness. But the 2007 edition of Forgive and Forget proudly proclaims that 400,000 copies of the book had already been sold by then. It's safe to say that the book and its ideas about forgiveness have clearly been influential, not merely in religious circles, but also in psychological counseling and politics. Smead's books are full of what I think of as strange platitudes that distort what forgiveness is about. Consider this one. Forgiving is a gift, not a duty. It is meant to heal, not to obligate. So the only good answer to Peter's question about how often to forgive is, use the gift as often as it takes to set you free from a miserable past you cannot shake. Of course, Meads is free to develop his theology as he wishes, but his statement here is not really in line with Peter's question and Jesus' answer. From Jesus' perspective, forgiving is a duty. To be sure, forgiveness is also designed for healing. But that healing is not merely for oneself. What Smedes describes is not forgiveness, but instead, as you'll know if you listen to last week's episodes, something more like moving on or getting over it, which we discussed last week. To be sure, genuine forgiveness usually leads to moving on, but they're not equivalent. My response to Smedes is relatively simple. Unconditional forgiveness is dangerous, and one should be careful about granting forgiveness in serious cases of wrongdoing. Withholding forgiveness may be a better choice. The odd thing about Smead's book is that it's designed to help one, yet the insistence on forgiving no matter what the wrongdoer has done or failed to do has a very oppressive feel. It can make victims think that they have no other choice than to forgive those who have hurt them. To be fair to Smeads, he does devote an entire chapter to the topic of whether forgiving might be dangerous. 
he says that forgiving then is a serious risk. That's quoting from him. But the thrust of the chapter is that it's a risk worth taking. While he grants that forgiveness cheaply given is dangerous, let us face it, I'm just quoting him, he goes on to argue that, again, to use the chapter title, forgiving is a better risk. He suggests using what he calls redemptive remembering, which he characterizes as a healing way to remember the wrongs of our irreversible past. He expands upon this by saying redemptive memory is focused on love emerging from the ashes, light that sheds darkness, and hope that survives remembered evil. But I need to stop there. I'll have more to say about this aspect of unconditional forgiveness in the next episode. If you found today's episode helpful or interesting, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash unbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both is our email address, unbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for our continuing exploration of forgiveness. (laughs) 